Father, once again, we are so thankful for the privilege of being here. We're so thankful that we still have freedom in this country to practice what we believe and to declare it openly, Father. Though that time may not be here for long, we don't know. The early church suffered a lot for what they taught, which was what we're teaching, of course. And, Father, the time may come when we'll be faced with the choice of suffering or holding back the doctrine. May we always make the right choice to proclaim the truth, regardless of the cost. We know that that's what the early church found to be true, and that's what Scripture would encourage us to do likewise. So may we always be faithful to your word, we ask in our Savior's name. Amen. Okay, we're on page 11, and uh, we're moving a little slower. I was looking, and I thought, boy, Pastor's sailing through his pages, but uh, that's okay. He's been doing a good job. I've really enjoyed that. If I can put a commercial in, boy. And anybody that's uh, missed any of these online, go back and listen to them, because this has been a good series on, on homartiology. And... Uh, we encourage you to do that. Now, we're looking... Now, we've, we started the section last week on... Uh, or the week before... Yeah, last week. We started looking at the fact that the Old Testament is the Word of God. Now, the, in looking at Scripture, we were looking at it in terms of how the world believes it. How should we respond? What should our opinion be about what the Scripture is? Well, if we look at it like the world does, we would come pre- with, a, with a prejudiced look of saying, well, it, it, God can't do that. So that doesn't happen. There, are, there aren't miracles. There aren't signs. There aren't all these things. God doesn't do that. Therefore, it can't be the Bible. Or we can approach it as we are. And what we're doing now is we're simply going through Scripture and letting Scripture say what it says. And we'll determine after that, are we going to believe it? Or are we going to believe what the unsaved say? And there's going to wind up being, I think you're going to find out that there's going to be more of an internal awareness than there is external. There's more internal proof than there is external. What do I mean by that? Well, I know the scripture is true because some of the things it says that God will do in my behalf, he will do. You know, one of the simple things is that I hadn't thought of it much, but, but just tonight it occurred to me that sometimes when I confess my sins, there's an awareness I've done something wrong and there's an impending sense of, I shouldn't have done that. I know better than that. And I'll start to feel bad. But you know what happens? If I confess my sins, that feeling goes right, right away. Now, I didn't take it away. It isn't something I did. So I look at it as being an evidence that, yes, God did forgive me because I could, you know, it, it, it's not to say that proves Scripture, but it certainly attests to the fact that there's validity, there's truth in the Word because it affects how I feel. And so a lot of the evidence is going to come right down to the end line of have we experienced things that Scripture promises as believers? And the answer is, yes, at least I hope we have. I hope all of you can say, I can look back and remember I prayed for this and it happened. God did this in my life. I asked for direction about something and God did something for me. Or I prayed for someone else, you know, and, and this happened in their life. Not a case of I prayed for somebody with stage 4 cancer and they got healed. Because if I pray for someone with stage 4 cancer, there's a pretty good chance that that's not going to do any good. Other than maybe it'll make their way going home a little more comfortable. Maybe God will take away some of their suffering or something, but uh, there's some things that's not going to happen. So we're looking, therefore, at, at things the Scripture says, and I think even if we don't get to anything about uh, what kind of proofs we should look for in our own lives, I think we can say that we probably have a pretty good idea. Because I, one thing, if nothing else, most of us should be able to say, I can look back and remember when I got saved, and you talk about a change, there was a change in my life. Even my brother said that about me because I was, you know, when, when you said about discipline being more than spanking and not being any more than spanking, that was me. That was pretty much, I, I seemed like I was getting those all the time. 
And my dad even said one time, I think I spank you too much when you're growing up. He said something to that effect. And I said, you know, Dad, I think you probably didn't spank me enough. There were some things you didn't catch me doing that I got away with. <laughs> so, so, but I can look back, and, I can, and, I, and if we look back and see that alone, the Scripture says you'll be saved, and it says some of the things that will happen in you. And if you have been saved, then you have seen that the Word of God is true because it said this would happen to your life, and it did. You saw the difference in yourself. You've experienced it. If you've ever been filled by the Holy Spirit and seen the fruit of the Spirit in yourself or in others, you can see that the Word of God works because it says if you do these things, you'll be a spiritual believer and the fruit of the Spirit will come out and you can see it. So therefore, that may not be objective proof that would satisfy those people, but boy, it's sure pretty convincing to me. I imagine it is to you too. I hope it is. So we're looking at now some of the things that the Old Testament says. And we pointed out, and we're not going through, we're going to go through a little bit more in detail some of the things that are going to be said about New Testament books. But in the Old Testament, we have something like, we have thousands of uses of the Lord, thus saith the Lord. Now, if it's God saying it, then it's his word. Then if it's his word, it's true. And so we have that over and over. But we've, we've shown that there are some times when and things are important. And when we see the word of the Lord came, now, there's that statement in the Old Testament. Not every time it is used, but, I, but I, I encourage you, when you see the word of the Lord came unto someone saying that you remember what John 1.1 1, 1 says. Who was the word? What was the word? Who is the word? Do you realize that the word of the Lord came and he said there would be an appearance of the pre-incarnate son, that he came and delivered a message? So if he came and delivered a message, is that not a little bit more emphatic and maybe a little bit more important than just an angel delivered it or they just had a vision and God spoke in a vision but no one came they just had a vision in their mind or they saw something or a dream it'd be a little more striking so that's why in Genesis 15 when Abram gets saved what, it's, it's important enough that the, the second person of the Godhead comes himself and it is he that brings that man out of that tent now we may not think, think of it that way but that is what happened the word of the Lord came and it was a person that took him by the hand in Genesis 15 you remember that let's go back and look at it for just a second so when you see the word of the Lord came look at carefully at the context because it very likely could be and many times is the second person that God had bringing a message and if it's brought by him then that means it's probably a little bit more important than some of the other messages maybe it's a little more critical now it starts off in verse 1 of Genesis 15. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. So he saw something in a vision, which means he saw something no one else could see. Was that real? Was what he saw actually real? Well, I think it was, because as you look down through here, he speaks to Abraham saying, Stop fearing, Abraham. I'm your shield and your exceeding great reward. And then... Uh, the word of the Lord came, it says, verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Now here the word of the Lord came unto him. Is it a person or is it a, a, a thing doesn't come to you, but a person can come to you. And so then it says, The word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be your heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth. Who brought him forth? The word of the Lord. It was a person that was there. Now, if we have any question about who the word of the Lord is, just remember what John 1.1 1, 1 says. What was the second person of God? Who was he, what was he known as before the decree? Back before he became known as the Son. The Son is something that relates to the decree. But his character, what he was known as in eternity past, John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was what? The Son? No, no, no. 
with the word. The word. He is the one that, the word is the one that expresses character. Word means, the idea of word in the New Testament is frequently used as an expression of something. It is, to revel, it is expressing or telling you something. And this is the person of the Godhead that reveals the character of God. That is one of the things, each one of the persons of the Trinity, I believe, shows a different, unique preference of what they do. And the Spirit of God, we see he's the one that arranged the universe. He's the one that does the arranging things in the church. He arranges gifts. That's his preference. But the Son of God is the one that reveals the life because you have indwelling life, eternal life. Where did you get that from? It's Christ in you. That's where the character comes from. So this one that came, he came to express what God wanted because he is the second person of the Trinity. And so if he came to this man in Genesis 15, that must have been a pretty important thing. He could not. Could Abraham have been saved some other way if he just got a revelation and he had a dream or a vision and just saw a person that didn't come there? But this person, it says he brought him forth. And if I'm not mistaken, I, I, I forgot to double check this, but I believe this is a, one of those unique forms in Hebrew that he himself, he made this man come forward. It emphasizes that, that the word, he made him come out. He grabbed him by the hand. He made him come out of the tent. And I think the reason being, if you look at the context overall, Abraham is kind of brash towards God. He says, you haven't given me any seed. He's blaming God. He says, you're going to give me an error. Well, you haven't given me any seed. He's a little bit, uh, let's just say brash would be a good term for it. And so, would he want to come out of the tent? No. The word had to pull him out and say, now look at the heavens. And so, that, that's, you see a little bit of grace there because, I don't know, if I had been talked to kind of like that, I might not have been quite so favorable towards a guy that was rude to me. But so, the point being that this is a person that comes. And so, when you see something like that, does it not suggest to you that that might be just a little bit more important than just, yeah, Dan? That, that Hebrew form is here. It is? Okay. Yeah, and also, the, the thing that occurs to me is that you're laying this out. You've got a dialogue between two persons. Mm-hmm, Yes. Yeah. If you contemplate, he is facing a person. Exactly. Dan's point is good. Dan didn't add to it, and I, and I appreciate that point. Uh, it makes more sense in context when Abraham is speaking. He's speaking to a person, and a person is speaking to him. Now, I mean, it'd be kind of hard to speak to a vision or a dream, but to speak to a person that appears to you. So it, it fits the context. And yes, it is that one particular form. And this is why, for those of you that are, that are not real interested in Hebrew, but might be just marginally interested. There, this is one form of the word that we can't, we don't have an equivalent in English. English is, uh, is kind of an awkward language because this particular form of the word it takes about six or seven or eight English words to, to do. He caused him to come forth. It's just a single word, but we have to say he caused him to come forth, and it emphasizes that the word made this guy come out of there. He had to make him, he personally made him come out. He was responsible because Abraham wasn't going to come out. And they're talking face to face. And so when you see that, that changes this whole scenario quite a bit. Because this is the second person of God coming down in physical form and appearing to this man and talking to him face to face and making him a promise. And so this man, Abraham, and his brashness, if you realize he's talking face to face. Now, he's not seeing the pre-incarnate son in all his glory. He's seeing him in a humanoid form. 
but he's still talking to someone that he does recognize ultimately as being deity. Because the way he talks to me indicates this is God. You haven't done this for me. You haven't given it to me. Well, who gives children and everything? Abraham knew who he was talking to. Do you realize that? He knew who he was talking to. But he still said face to face to God, you haven't given me any seed. In other words, what are you saying? You haven't. You're my reward. How are you my reward? You haven't done anything for me. It's kind of like he's saying to God, you haven't done anything for me? Now, would you want to say stand face to face to God in flesh? Even if it was just like this, not his full glory, but it was just an appearance of the Son of God. And you want to say to him, what have you done for me lately? I always like to joke about that, about something. We'll do something for somebody. It's, done, you know, it's been real good to us. And five minutes gone by. So what have they done for us lately? You know, five minutes ago they did something. Well, what have they done lately? What have they done today? They did it yesterday. You know, that type of thing. So when you look at this, it, this, this changes the, this, the conversion of this man because this is the first time you have recorded in, in Scripture someone's salvation experience and how God dealt with them. And I think there's some interesting things to consider because what did God offer this man? He offered him a personal relationship with himself because God would be involved in his life and giving him a seed, of being his protection, of being his reward. That's a personal relationship. And I think whenever we preach the gospel, whenever we get a chance to deal with people, along with saying 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, we need to encourage people by saying, you can have a personal relationship with the God of the universe because this man got to see him face to face. Now, we can't. We can't do that when we give somebody the gospel. We can't bring God down and have God in humanoid form speak those things. But we can share those things. We can share the fact that you can have a personal relationship with God. Maybe that's something that we need to do more often. Now, of course, the problem is, unless God does the work, it doesn't matter how many things we add. If the Holy Spirit doesn't open their eyes, it may not make any difference. But I think we need to consider when we look at these things that we don't just say God's going to forgive you for your sins. Well, then the people are going to say, well, what's sin? What's this all? They might get sidetracked on that. Say, well, what, what is sin anyway? Well, you, what's your definition? This is my definition. They get off on something else. And you don't want that. You don't want that. Stick to the gospel. Well, so we came to, uh, after Abram's now on the top of page 11, we have the prohibition against David building a temple was so important that the pre-incarnate son personally delivered to Nathan the prophet. So let's go to 1 Chronicles 17. So you would think, well, now, why is this so important? Well, as we go there, um, one question I have to ask you. Did, where did you, where in, in the Old Testament, where can you find that God asked his people to build him a permanent house? Can anybody think of the reference to it? Let's take 1 Chronicles 17. And beginning at verse 1. Now it came to pass, as David sat in his house, that David said unto Nathan the prophet, Lo, I dwell in a house of cedars, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord remains under curtains. Then Nathan said unto David, Do all that is in thine heart, for God is with thee. So Nathan knew him well enough when, when, when David said that I live in cedar, a house of cedars and the ark of the covenant is in the tent. He knew, what, he knew what this man was saying. Pretty much, I think anybody would have figured out. He's talking about building something for the, you know, permanent for the covenant. And, but notice verse 3. And it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying. Now, it's the word of the Lord came to him, saying. Now, who would the word of the Lord be? Would that be a vision? Or would that be a person? It sounds to me like it could very likely be. And I believe it's the person, the second person of the Godhead showed up. And he said, go tell David, my servant, thus saith the Lord. 
Thus says Jehovah. So this one that came said, Thus saith Jehovah. So the one that's, this is well, somebody that claimed to be speaking as Jehovah. So it's got to be the second person. It's got to be the word. This is an actual appearance in flesh. Now you think, is this event that important? Well, stop for a moment. It says, look what he goes on to say. Here's the answer to the question. Where do you find that verse? Well, you're going to get the answer right here. Go and tell David, my servant, thus saith the Lord, thus saith Jehovah, you shall not build me a house to dwell in, for I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought thee up, up, up Israel unto this day, neither, but have gone from tent to tent and from one tabernacle to another, wheresoever I have walked with all Israel, spake I a word to the judges of Israel whom I commanded to feed my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedars? Ah, so God never did ask for that, did he? So maybe that's the reason that the word of the, the, word of the, the son comes and says, you're not going to do this, David. Now, ultimately, Solomon's going to do it. He's going to tell you that. And then he goes on to say, verse 7, Therefore, thus, say, thus you shall say unto David, my servant, thus said the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheep coat, sheep coat even from following the sheep, and that you should be the ruler of my people Israel. And I've been with you wheresoever you have walked, and have cut off your enemies from before you, and have made you a name like the great men of the earth. Also I will, do- I will ordain a place for my people Israel, and will plant them. They shall dwell in the place, and shall be moved no more. Neither shall their children, uh, the children of wickedness, waste them any more, as at the beginning. So he's just telling, look it, you're not going to be the one to do this. I've done this for you. And, and, and he goes on to say, verse 11, And it shall come to pass, when your days be expired, that you must go to be with your fathers, and I will raise up thy, thy seed after thee, which shall be of thy sons, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. And it goes on from there. So David was, David was stopped by this. Nathan was... So this must have been important. Now you might think, well, why is that so important? Well, it was to God. It was important enough that he stopped David because I think David probably would have followed through with it. Now, we do know, and I don't have references here for it, but you can find it in the Old Testament where he, he laid up a lot of the materials. He made tons of materials. He made, in fact, it sounds to me like, as I remember, he made up almost the entire amount of material, everything that was needed. He had all the stuff there, the nails, the material for the nails, the stones were cut, there were many stones cut and so forth. And there was, there was work that was done after that. But the, all the raw material and uh, some of the finished stuff was already there because of David. So he, would have, he undoubtedly would have built the temple if, he was, if God had not stopped him. And so it, it was apparently it was that important to him. And uh, now you'll notice that God gave instructions for the tabernacle. Now, we, we won't go there, but you can look at it in Exodus 25 through 27. There is... There is the instructions that God gave Moses on the mount for the tabernacle, how to build the tabernacle. But if you go through those chapters, look carefully and see, do you see any indication that God said, I want a permanent dwelling, and this is what you do when you get to the land? You won't find that. In fact, I don't think you find that anywhere in the first five books of Moses, that there's no indication that God ever asked for a permanent house. So maybe that's the reason that the Son of God appeared to no minute. This is how it's going to be. It was that important that he appeared himself. And so I think when you look at it, it's a, it'd be a fun study, and I hope some of you take me up on it. Go through and look at the places where the word of the Lord came and said, and see what's involved there and say, 
why would this be important? If this is the Son of God delivering this, why is that important? Why would, why would he have to come and do it? Why is it that important? Well, from God's point of view, it might be more important than we think. I would have, for this idea of the tabernacle here, or the temple, I wouldn't have really particularly thought so much that it was that big a deal that the son would have to come pre-incarnate and tell Nathan, say, this is what the Lord says. I wouldn't have thought it was that important. But then again, that's because I only know what I know. Now, going on from that point, let's look more more towards something else. How about the Son of God himself? Now, Christ and his earthly ministry is going to refer to the Old Testament scripture, and there's going to be no question about the fact that he is going to say it is the word of God. It is not just the works of men. And so, I think in the clearest statement in the Old Testament, or rather the clearest statement about the Old Testament, in the Gospels would be in Mark chapter 7. Let's go over there for a moment to Mark chapter 7. And I want to look at that with you and see what exactly is said and uh, the significance of it. Mark chapter 7, and we'll start reading at verse 1. Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is the sand wash hands, they found fault. For, now notice it's explanatory. There's that word for. It's explanatory. It says, because the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands off, eat not, eat not. Now notice, holding the tradition of the elders. So when it says they were defiled, verse 2, and they had unwashed hands and they were finding fault, was that according to Scripture? It was according to their tradition. There's where Christ is going to get into trouble with these individuals because he is going to deliberately buck their tradition because they were holding their tradition up and they were replacing Scripture with their tradition. They were getting around it. We'll show you in just a second on, on that. But they were, they were twisting it. So, if we go on from there, it says, holding the tradition of elders, in verse 4, And when they were come from the market, except they washed, they eat not. And many other things they hold, as the washing of, of cups, pots, of brazen vessels, and of tables. Then the Pharisees asked him, why, do your, why, why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? Why aren't they following the tradition of the elders? <laughs> And let me ask. Let me ask the question another way. Why should you follow the tradition of the elders? What makes that so special? Well, the elders, God. Is this scripture? No, it isn't. And when you see, when you have the tradition of the elders, it's obvious it's going to change some things. If you change the word of God, it's not going to be a change for the better, is it? If we change something in scripture, we're not going to change it for the better. That's for certain. So, verse six. And he answered and said to them, Well spoke Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, there it is, laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, such as the washing of pots and cups and many other such things you do. And he said unto them, Full well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your own tradition. There is, there is the answer to it. Now, it's interesting to note that if you really wanted to get involved in a study of, of this idea of tradition of the elders, eventually it was written down. And it is known today 
is the Talmud. Now the Talmud, I think there's two different versions of it. There's a Babylonian Talmud and there's a Jerusalem Talmud. And I think it's the Babylonians, like 40 books. I mean, there are more books that than there are the Bible. And I read one of them one time, and this was, this was really, I just shook my head. And I was Pastor Dave's, in his library, he has a set of the Talmud. And I read this one section, and it was talking about and the Feast of Tabernacles, when you're supposed to dwell in the booths, the tabernacles. Well, they have modern versions of it, and they, they sell them. And so the, this, the rabbis were discussing and debating how big the opening should be, the events by it, how big the door should be. Uh, huh? The size of the opening of a door of a... Is, that, is there anything important about that? If you're, if you're dwelling in tabernacles and it's not specified as to how big they should be, it seems like you should dwell in tabernacles. Well, what size? I don't know. Just tabernacles. Is there anything? Well, there's no special size. But here, that's, they go on about those kind of things and they overlook a whole lot of other things. You can see that. Well, you, you can see this here. He goes on and says, look what it's going, going to go on and say. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoso curses father and mother, let him die the death. But you say, If a man shall say to his father and mother, Mother Korban, that is to say a gift, in other words, that's a gift that they pledge to give to the temple. Korban, by whatsoever you might be profited by, he shall be free. And you shall suffer him to do no, to do, uh, no more to do aught for his father and mother, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition. And many which you have delivered, and many such things do you. So he says, making effect the word of God. So the word of God, what's the word of God? Well, this comes back to the law. And you'll find this is mentioned in some of the prophets. So now you have a fact that the Old Testament is going to be considered the law. So you you notice in our points that the, the two things that you want to take away from this passage down to verse 13 is, first of all, the leaders were using their doctrines to replace the law of Moses. And the fact, the fact is that the law of Moses is called the Word of God. That, that covers the first five books of Moses. But then, you'll notice our next point, but by proclaiming the law of Moses to be the Word of God, Jesus is going to validate the heart of... He's validating the heart of the, the relationship that God had with Israel because... Remember, first of all, the law regulated the lifestyle of all Israel. And to state that it's the word of God places every provision in Exodus 20 through 36 as God's word for Israel. So, everything back there is the word of God. It's the heart of it. Now, anything that's going to be built on this by men of God is going to probably be the word of God too. And it's going to work out that way because... Point number B, the Old Testament prophets repeatedly called the nation back to observing the law. And that certainly suggests, if nothing else, aside from the fact you have in the Old Testament prophets, that thus saith the Lord, that God is speaking back there, but the fact that they were building on the law and calling people back to the law, does not suggest that they're talking about the word of God? Because they're saying, thus saith the Lord, you go back to this? It's kind of hard to miss the fact that the prophets have to be speaking the word of God. It has to be scripture because of what they're doing with it. Now, here's, an, here's one that's a little bit more interesting, too. The Psalms and the Proverbs were built upon the law which Jesus stated to be God's word. Now, for example, let's go over to Psalm chapter 1. By the way, an interesting thing about the Psalms, uh, they were not all written at the same time, and they had to be collected. And so the order which they're written 
uh, don't think for a moment that Psalm 1 was written first, Psalm 2 was written next, and so forth. Because if you go back to 1 Chronicles, I think it's 16, you'll find the first, the first psalm that, Mo, that uh, David wrote is something like way back in the 80s or 90s or something like that. So they're not written in order, but they're, 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 they're been arranged by, by humans. But I think there's a little bit of supernatural involvement because if, if you look at Psalm chapter 1, you know what you have here, I believe? Now, I don't know how many... I haven't looked at the commentaries to see if they, if they say it too, but then I, I haven't got enough of them to look at. But I think when you look at Psalm 1, you're looking at the, the, the psalm that sets the theme for the entire book of Psalms. This is the one that tells you what the book is all about. Well, look at what it says. Blessed or happy is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of the scornful. I used to tell uh, one of the guys at, at Woodburn, I said, you better watch your seat carefully. I said, because I put scornful on the back of one, so if you're sitting in that, you're sitting in the seats of the scornful. And he, of course, he appreciated that. You'd have to know, Jeff. It says, sits in the seats of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. Ah, so here's your theme. What is the theme? The happy man is the one that's going to pay attention to the word of God, to the law, the Old Testament law. And what happens to that person? He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord, or for Jehovah, knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Now doesn't that pretty much cover everything in the Psalms? I think it does. I think this is the theme for the book. So this is the supernatural arrangement. That this wasn't something men did, and I don't know when Psalm 1 was written, and I'm not sure who the author of it was, because many of the Psalms, if you look across the page, you say Psalm 3 says the Psalm of David, but Psalm 1 doesn't say who wrote it, nor do we know when it was written. But I think it was put there, when you look at that, if you want to understand the book of Psalms, there it is right there. Now there's another place, there's one other Psalm, look at Psalm 119. This one I think is... Uh, in, in the book of Psalms, probably this is the most important single chapter. But it's more than just a chapter. It's 176 verses. So it's really a chapter. But if you look at, you'll see that same theme that comes up again if you look at Psalm 119. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep the testimonies and seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity, they walk in his ways. You've commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. Uh, there's, there's, you see that? There's, we've mentioned this before. There's a request. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. Why would you have to ask that unless you didn't have divine enablement like we do? Uh, I hope you don't have to pray this. I hope you don't ask this in prayer. Oh, God, help me, help me to, 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 to live up to the word of God. Help me to do what I should be doing. Because you have that potential if you just confess your sins and you come to Scripture and you allow the Holy Spirit to direct you. You don't have to be looking for this. So you see there's a lot of difference here. But you'll notice, so you see that once again, this psalm is built upon the Scripture. It's built entirely upon how Scripture works in your life. So is it not logical to assume from that that this is the Word of God? The psalms are the Word of God? Now, one thing I realized about the psalms is that there's a lot in there about how David felt. And uh, David said some things that we interpret literally. 
But what he said was not literally true. For example, in one case, he said the waves have gone, billows have gone over my head. Well, I don't find any place recorded that he was actually sitting in water and it went over his head. But what he was saying was literally true. He literally felt that way. That's how he felt. And it's literally true. So I take it word for it, but I realize it's a figure of speech. So you'll find things in the psalm where there's a lot of emotions, but you have to realize that Scripture records what, the, what David said. This is what David said. This is how he felt. And it shows you one important thing. One of the things about David that you might not have thought about, if you read through the psalms, look through them again, and look at how David is up and down and up and down and up and down in his spiritual life. Is that the way we should be? Should we be one day on top of the hill and the next day we're going, oh, I'm a terrible sinner. I haven't done anything right, Lord. No, that's not the way we should be. So you look at that, and I hope you don't want to impersonate or want to practice what David did and be like David. I hope you don't want to do that. Because David was like this. He was emotional. Well, why? Because he didn't have the provisions of grace. He didn't have a new nature. He didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit. He didn't have the potential to do what we do. So be careful, folks, of saying you want to be like David. I don't particularly want to be like David. After all, he had Bathsheba in his life, too, for one thing. That's right. There's a a problem. But I I don't want to be like that man. I don't want to be in an emotional roller coaster. And, you know, you don't have to be as a believer. That's one thing I think a lot of people, Pastor, I think a lot of people don't understand that we don't have to live that way because I think a lot of people assume that that's normal for the Christian. I don't think so. If you look at having the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, where do you find emotional roller coasters and all that? Do you see anything about that that makes it sound like you're going to be up and down, up and down? Or are you going to be more or less at an even keel? And after all, doesn't it say in Philippians 4 that we let our moderation be known to all men? What's moderation? No. It's being, having, keeping our wits about us even when the world's coming apart at the seams. So moderation, yeah. So I hope when you read the psalm, but now that doesn't take anything away from the psalms. I do believe they're the word of God. And, and the Proverbs also. Proverbs, well, why would I say that? Well, look at Proverbs chapter 1 for just a moment. Why would I say it's the word of God? Why would the, the internal evidence say that? Well, the principle that the book is written on, and once again, you have, a, you have the basic theme of what the book is about in the first chapter. When Solomon writes, he says in verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Please note the beginning. Not the end, it's the beginning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In other words, in the Old Testament, you didn't have knowledge about God until you started by having fear, having a little healthy respect for this one who was called Jehovah. It was the fear of the Lord was the beginning of wisdom. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then he goes on to say, My son, hear the instruction of thy father, and forsake not the law of thy mother. You want an interesting study. Go through the first nine chapters. And look how many times you have my son, singular. Now, he do have my children once, but he is my son. If you look at the first nine chapters, I want to suggest something to you. These were words that Solomon wrote to his son Rehoboam. I believe that's what it is. Now, I can't prove it, but it's singular. And then when when you get to chapter 10, it, it just becomes a collected Proverbs just general proverbs but the first nine chapters let me suggest to you those were Solomon's words to Rehoboam his son that does anybody remember what Rehoboam did when he got to be king does anybody remember what happened with him 
we won't go there, but if you look at First Chronicles 12 and 13, you'll find out that the people came to him, and Solomon had a splendid kingdom, wealth all over the place, enormous amounts of money and wealth and property and, and possessions. The only way a guy that has, the only way a king can have all that wealth is he's got to get that money. Where did he get that money from? Oh, the people. So the people came to him and said, can you lighten the tax burden of your father? Rehoboam talked to his father's, to his father's advisors after his father was gone, the old men that advised his father. And they said, yeah, yeah, do what the people said. Lower their taxes and they'll serve you. And so he set them aside and he went to the young men in his age bracket and said, what should I tell these people? Say, ah, my, little, my thumb is going to be heavier than my father's loins. I'm going to lay it on you. If Proverbs 1 through 9 were written for, for Rehoboam, Rehoboam must not have listened very well because he was not a wise man. And the 8th chapter is all about wisdom. And that would really strike you hard if you looked at what Rehoboam did after his father basically described wisdom and personalized it in a way that he could understand it. Rehoboam didn't pay attention to it, did he? Look at that. I, I challenge you. If you want a fun study for the first nine chapters, if you use Esword, just get my son, bring it up, and it'll show you where it comes. You'll pop up all the verses. And you'll see where it's used, and then ask yourself, if he's saying, my son, singular, is he not talking to a specific one? I think he's talking to a particular one. And who would, who would Solomon be more concerned about as an older man than his son following him and his son seeing where his dad screwed up? Now, you remember when Solomon got old, what happened to him? His wife's turned his heart away from God. Why would he write something to his son? He didn't want his son to be stupid like he was. Yeah, he was stupid toward the end of his life. Really, really stupid. Well, that's 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 just extra. That's that's a commercial message. We're not gonna. We don't. Dan, we don't charge for that. So you don't have to pay Dan. Nothing extra. So, so I I think then that that you have Mark six seven uh, Mark seven six through thirteen is probably the simplest proof of the word of God is uh, the Old Testament's the word of God. Now. Going on from there, at one of the greatest tests in his life, Jesus affirmed that the, that the Old Testament was the word of God. And you find that in a temptation because when he, when he is going to be tempted, his defense is not going to come from human wisdom. Although as, as, a, as the God-man, his human wisdom would have probably exceeded anything we could ever imagine, but he still didn't do that. Now, you'll notice down at the bottom of page 11, the greatest testimony... To Hebrews 4, this is the greatest testimony to Hebrews 4.15. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin is Jesus Christ's temptation. The greatest proof that he was without sin is the fact that he would go through what he went, went through in, in, the, in Matthew 4 and in Luke 4. Now, if you turn, let's see, what should we go to? They're both... Um, Let's go to Matthew 4, and let's see what's going on here. Because I think in the temptation, there's, there's, uh, there's something that we don't necessarily recognize or overlook. I mean, he's tempted, and we, okay, we know that he's tempted. That's, that's true. But what are the circumstances? Verse 1, Hebrews, or Matthew chapter 4. Then, then, then was Jesus led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of or from the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he's afterward hungered. 40 days and 40 nights? 
You know, I think the furthest most people can go is about 60, 60 some odd days before you starve to death. So you figure this man is two thirds of the way towards death. Would he be at his best? <laughs> Not likely. Not likely. At this, at this particular point, I don't know how the average human would be, but this is the God man. But how would the average human be? Uh, I don't know. But so here he's going to be tempted. He's going to get these three great temptations whenever he's at his lowest point that he could ever be at. Now, Luke 4 has something that I, maybe we should have gone to Luke 4, because Luke 4 adds something to this. What you might not realize from looking at Matthew, Luke adds something that you should probably recognize in this temptation. We think that when Christ was tempted, there were three temptations, right? Well, those were the three temptations that were delivered at the end, and I believe the fact that they're at the end, I think Satan said, I'm going to, give him, I'm going to hit him with my best shot. Hit me with your best shot. These are the three biggest ones. These were the three knockout punches he had. Because I do believe, when you look over in Luke 4, and I should have taken you there too, in, in Luke chapter 4, verse 2, it's, well, we'll read verses 1 and 2 together. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan, and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being 40 days tempted from the devil. Being 40 days tempted from the devil. You see what happened? It's not just the last three. It says there's 40 days he's tempted the devil. How many times? I have no idea. We're not told. It says he's tempted during 40 days. Now, if Satan is as cunning and as despicable as he is, I don't suppose he came to him once a day and said, hey, uh, mark it on your calendar tomorrow. I'll come see you at 2 o'clock. I want to tempt you. No, I think Satan would come as often as he could. So for 40 days, even if it was one temptation a day, that would be 40 temptations that are not recorded. And all the time this man is not eating and he's going downhill physically further and further and Satan is coming at him. He's harassing him for 40 days. Then when you get to the end, now he's going to deliver his last three that I think when you look at these, I think the reason these are the last three is because these would have been what Satan considered just a knockout punch. If nothing else has worked, these have got to work. And I think you can say that's true because when you come to him, now I know that Luke has it in the chronological order. So actually chronologically, when looking at Matthew, uh, you see uh, the last one in, four, in verse 8 is the third temptation is the kingdoms of the world. But actually, if you look at Luke, Luke says he wrote his book chronologically. And so actually, that was the first temptation. But Matthew, in his reckoning, puts it as the end, because what would be the greatest temptation for a king? To have kingdoms, wouldn't it? be logical. So Matthew puts it, not because it was first. And does it matter what order it's in? I know there, there are those critics who say, oh, see, the Bible has a contradiction. They disagree. Oh, give me a break. Give me a break. You mean if you change the order of the three, you have the same three in both accounts. Does it make any difference what the order is? Especially if you're honest with Scripture and you take it literally and you see Luke says, I'm writing in chronological order. Then that would explain it. So in the th case of the third one, it says, The devil takes him up to exceeding high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and says unto him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, if you remember back in Psalm chapter 2, the very thing that God had promised him to do when he came. Let's hold your finger and go back to Psalm 2 for a moment. Back to Psalm chapter 2. And you see, what was it that God promised? What was he sent to do? You know, it's, we're not, we're not going to imagine things. And we're going to do what needs to be done. And that is, 
let's let Scripture say what it has to say. I always like it when Pastor said, that, and I, I get a kick out of it when he says, I'm not making this up. I always, I always like that, Pastor. It always strikes me as being funny that, it, it, I know you're not saying it to be funny, but it just comes across as, I'm not making this up, guys. You know, it's almost like it. But you'll notice, it says, why do, in Psalm chapter 2, it says, uh, okay, beginning at verse 6, it says, Yet have I set my, hill, my king on the holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou my son. You notice that art is not there. There's, he's not an artist. He says, Thou my son, this day I have begotten thee, or appointed thee. Ask of me, and I will give you the heathen for your inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. You shall rule them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O kings of the earth, and be instructed, you judges, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and kiss and fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. So, what was he sent to do? The son was sent to have a kingdom. Well, in Matthew, isn't that what he's going to do? In the fifth chapter, he's going to tell you some of the rules of the kingdom. He offered himself as king. He tells you some of the laws in the fifth chapter. It's not just stuff for the church. These are laws for the people of Israel that would be true in the millennial kingdom. And those are going to be laws that are there. And that's why we take them literally. Yeah, be, there would be a lot of one-eyed, there'd be a lot of blind people today if we, if we took Matthew 5 about the adultery and putting out the eyes. Most, most young men would be blind by the time they were 16 or 17 or maybe 18 if they're lucky. So I'm, I'm glad we don't practice it today. I'd have been blind a long time ago. But so when you see here, you have the son is offered this. And now here you think, why would I say this is Satan's knockout kingdom? Because Satan knows that this is what he was promised to have. This was something God promised him. This was not his imagination. Satan knows knows the Bible probably better than we do. Now, he doesn't believe it and he wouldn't do what it says, but he does know the Bible. Well, if he knows that this is what the son has been offered, then why not hit him? with a shortcut. Think about that. All you got to do is bow down and worship me just one time. Boy, Satan must really want to worship. Yes? I have a question on that. So if, if, if the Bible is written in kind of like a revelational standpoint where things are revealed at certain times, even yeah. to celestial beings and stuff like that, would Satan have had foreknowledge of that or would he have been just as in the dark as well, he, everyone else? Would? Well, he knew Psalm 2. Okay. So he knew Psalm 2. He knew that, that he was offered that. He was, that he was going to get the kingdom. So he wanted to give him the kingdom on his terms, which would have kind of given him de facto say, but it also would have caused the Son of God to commit sin. That's what he's after. He's after trying to, he's trying to control things. He wants to pull the strings. If he gives a kingdom to him, well, you know, Satan said that in, in Luke 4, you see, he said he gives it to whosoever he will and, and sets up you know, whoever he wants over it. But you know when Satan puts people over the world, who pulls the strings? Satan's pulling strings. In other words, so if he had given this kingdom, then the son would have not only sinned, but Satan would have been pulling the strings, and he would have still had the ultimate authority because it was still his, even though he was giving it to him. Now, if he's giving him complete ownership, at at the very least, he's going to sin. At the very least, you're going to have this person sin. 
And so what happens? Now, I don't know if Satan looked ahead enough because I don't think he understood the work of Christ because otherwise, why would he have, why would he have had the people reject him and put him on the cross if he knew that that was going to make him a savior? So I don't think Satan knew about that. But I think Satan knew in some way if he could make this man sin, it would do something to destroy the program of God. Now, I don't think Satan understood that he, that, that he was the God-man. I, Satan has a lot of wisdom, but don't think for a moment that Satan is all-knowing. He doesn't know everything. In fact, if he did know everything, he would probably know he was defeated. He'd probably stop now before he makes his punishment worse if he really knew everything. But he doesn't believe what he reads. So he doesn't really know it because he doesn't believe it. He won't believe it. You know some of the demons realize they're defeated? They re- realize they were defeated a long time ago? Well, look at, look at Revelation chapter 12. If you haven't seen this, this, this is an important thing to know about Satan. You think, well, why is this knucklehead continuing on fighting against God when he's going to lose? Well, you know what? He doesn't believe it. And I think as he looks at Scripture, he looks at it and says, well, this is what God plans to do. This is what God wants to do. This is what he thinks he can do. But I cannot smart him. That's what he's got to be thinking because look what it says in Revelation 12. And see, starting at verse, verse, uh, verse 7 of Revelation 12. And there was war in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And that great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil. See them, verse 9, that's how you know the serpent in, in, Revelation, or in Genesis 3 was Satan. Now you know it. This is the only place you'll find it. That old, you know it was Satan there, called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out on the earth, and his devils were cast out with him. And I heard a, a loud voice in heaven saying, Now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Let's, uh, let's skip down. Um, for, well, okay, let's go. Uh, verse 12. Therefore, ye heavens and ye that dwell in them, uh, therefore rejoice, you heavens and you that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down unto you having great wrath. Why? Because he knows he has but a short time. Now he knows it. You mean he doesn't know it today? Well, he knows what Scripture says, but does he believe it? Hmm. He's got to be looking at Scripture saying, oh, this is what God has planned. I cannot smart him. Hmm, isn't that interesting? He was so smart that when he tempted Adam to sin, he brought on himself judgment. That's what one of the results, that there would be a seed that was born of the woman that would crush his head. And when he got the people to betray Christ, the Jews, and put him on the cross... He really won something, didn't he? No, he provided salvation. And it tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, if he had known what was going to happen, he wouldn't have done it. Well, he wouldn't have had his people do it. Well, Satan's not so smart after all because he's fighting today because he thinks he's going to win. So don't be surprised you see the world going to, going to pot. Satan's not just saying, well, i got nothing better to do. No, Satan believes he's going to succeed. He's going to make a one-world government. He's going to do it. Why? Because he knows that God the Son is supposed to have a one is supposed to have the rule of, and if he can set up a one world government under his control, well then I guess he's outsmarted God and locked the Son out, hasn't he? Yes, Dan. You've got, a little, you've got an opportunity to analyze the relationship between the 
between perception of facts with the intellect mm -hmm. and what how wisdom deals with that. First Corinthians two seven, and you're, you're aware of this, but it's an interesting on the tail end of what our brother offered there. It's the oida, it's the ido verb mm -hmm. in Revelation twelve. Yeah. In First Corinthians two, they did not know it's a gnosko verb. Yeah. And it's an interesting. It forces you to contemplate how they responded. Yeah. And who made them? A, a fact content. Yeah, and yeah. And apparently convinced intellectually in Revelation 12 something he did not receive and didn't. Now he knows with intellect. Well, well, the reason he knows now is because he's been thrown out of heaven. And it's written, and when he actually gets thrown out of heaven, now he knows, hey, this is yeah. true. What God said did happen. I'm in trouble, guys. Now he knows he's got a short time. And that's now he's going to change his... And you'll notice it says that he's coming down to you with great, having great wrath. Satan today is called subtle. Boy, all holds... Katie Barthes are all... All holds are off. All bets are off. He's got wrath. Now, we've never seen Satan have wrath, but I can dare say if anything that we see hinted at and, and later in the book of Revelation and all the destruction comes, if he has his hand in any of that, he's pretty wrathful. And he is very destructive. He would kill. Uh, it's a good thing that, that he's not allowed to touch us because I can tell you, look at what he did with Job. He went as far as God would let him. He made Job's life miserable, and he, would, he didn't care. You know, one thing, one thing we should say, if you look over to Revelation 14, um, when you think about Satan, uh, this is this is uh, this is kind of we're adding to what we have in our notes, and, and uh, it, but I think it's important to recognize is that this one Satan that it doesn't know yet, but what does he think about the human race? Does he? People say, oh, he wants to be like God. I submit to you that that's not really that true. Back in Isaiah 14, he wanted to be like God, but in one respect, he wanted to put his throne up next to God's and act independent. But that's as far as it went. He does not try to be like God today. He doesn't. And the reason I say that is look, what, look how much uh, we have in, in Revelation 14. Now we find out that there's this thing about the mark of the beast that's been given out. And we find out from chapter 13 it was something that one of Satan's cohorts set up. One of the men of sins, they got the mark of the beast. Now who was behind that? Obviously Satan was behind that. Now does Satan know what's going to happen with the mark of the beast? Would that be fair to say, before we read this, would it be fair to say Satan knows what Revelation says and he knows what's going to happen to these people? Well, look, let's see what's going to happen to it. Verse 9 of Revelation 14. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man or any one received the mark of the beast in his image and received his mark on his forehead or on his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out with, without mixture, full strength, into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the, of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends upward forever and ever. They have no rest, day or night, whosoever, whosoever worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receives the mark, receives the mark of his name. Now, does Satan know that's going to happen to these people? If Satan was really trying to be like God, do you think he would want this to happen? This is how much he values the human race. 
You know, when Satan gives Satan gives the world system, when we've seen in Luke four, he gives the world system to people. Is he giving it to them for their benefit? Looking at this, what would you say? No, he's not. Satan does not value human life. Satan is not trying to be like God. I don't know why people want to think that today. Only in one respect, he wants to be like God in the sense that he's acting independent. He'll do what he wants to do. But what he wants to do is not anything like what God wants to do because God does not want this to happen. Now, I know in the decree it's planned and everything, but this is not what God desires to do. But this is what Satan is going to have done, and he already knows before it ever happens, if God does what he says he'll do, Satan knows what's going to happen. Do you think he cares? No. There's no evidence of it. I you cannot find any evidence that Satan cares about the human race. So, that's, that's, so, anyway, this is going back to page 12, if we can jump all the way back to that. So, if Jesus Christ had sinned, he could not have been the sinless substitute for mankind. There would have been no provision, no salvation for mankind, and Satan would have defeated God's decree. Now, I don't know how much he knew when I say Satan would have defeated God's decree. I don't know if he knew all the way up to Christ being the sin, the sin bearer, but he did know that he was going to defeat God's program in the sense that he was going to stop him from having the kingdom. Because if he had the kingdom, Satan would still have some control, have something to do with it. He would still have his hand in it somehow. He'd give it to him, just like he gave it to others. Mm-hmm. It's still hold, beholding control over it. So you'd have the Son of God sitting there with the man of all, with the Satan pulling the strings behind the scene. Mm-hmm. 